Welcome to 5 Minutes to Chaos, the podcast that dives deep into the world of chaotic emergencies and complex crisis management. In each episode, we'll engage with emergency managers and crisis leaders to explore the challenges that arise in times of crisis and the strategies they employ to navigate through them. From natural disasters to technical failures to human-caused events, we'll examine real-life scenarios that put crisis managers to the test. Join us as we uncover the lessons learned from past emergencies and gain insight into the complexities of crisis management. With five minutes to chaos, you'll be better prepared to face the unexpected when it strikes. Let's dive in. Hello, everybody. Steve Kerr here, your host of Five Minutes to Chaos, an unrehearsed, unscripted podcast with the goal of promoting crisis management through the raw experiences and observations of emergency managers, crisis leaders, and incident commanders that have led their teams through challenging and complex situations. We have with us today somebody that I can honestly say may have the broadest and most extensive experience in public safety and emergency management, and somebody that I have uh, shared connective uh, scar tissue with, having been uh, in the trenches with uh, with him in a number of uh, major emergencies over the course of, of both of our careers. This is uh, being recorded on September 8th, 2023, a few days in advance of the 22nd anniversary of the 9/11 attacks, and uh, I thought it'd be—I uh, thought Tom Fargion would be a great guest to talk about um, not only the attacks but also all things emergency management and uh, some of the uh, progress that we have made over the decades, and that brings us to really where we are today. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for having me. And let me start out by acknowledging the great work that you've done with your podcast and with the things that you uh, host to LinkedIn and those things, uh, they, they really are um, some, some observations that people need to pay attention to and some context that a lot of people don't have. So thank you for that. And as I sit, as I sit here, I was thinking of all the people that you've had on before me doing this. And man, you had some, uh, some giants in the field on uh, uh, in you know, first response or emergency management or, or a number of things. So, Steve, I want to thank you for doing this, and actually, thank you for having me on. Thank you for saying those things. Uh, I, I, I believe that we are a bit uh, at a bit of a crossroads, or maybe just beyond the crossroads, because as you and I were talking pre-show a little bit, there are some some new folks coming out in, in the emergency management business, and I, I was fortunate to uh, record an episode earlier. Uh, with uh, a young man that has uh, what he called uh, is from the degree phase of our business. And he got a degree in emergency management, but he was fortunate enough to land a couple positions and uh, he's able to use those degrees. He's actually an assistant VP with a bank in in New York, upstate New York, western New York, actually. And he runs crisis management for the organization. And he has got a good story to tell. And it's it's gratifying, Tom, to see the younger generation coming up behind us using those degrees that people like you and I fought for, that that you and I have helped structure and and the business that you and I have helped create. Because um while I don't think you and I are ready to sunset yet, you know, the we're definitely uh uh we definitely have some time behind us. But we we we've done some great things in our time and some of those things together. So why don't you uh, take a minute and uh t- take a few minutes actually and if you would tell the listeners about your background because it really is impressive, but more so it's informative and talks about your story and how that will fit in today's uh crisis management discussion. Yeah, uh, thank you, Steve. I, uh, I've i been at this for over 51 years now. Uh, I started back in 1972 uh, as a police officer. I worked in inner city precincts. Uh, I went to narcotics, wound up with that command, uh, special investigations. Uh, I did that for about, you know, the better part, the balance of 21 years. And uh, then the last 10 years, I did critical incident management, ESU type of rescue paramedicine. Uh, and um, 
those applied those applied sciences, and I mean so that prepared me pretty well. Um, I was uh, upon my retirement from the police. I was hired by the state of New York as uh, deputy director for emergency management for response activities, uh, both internal and external. Uh, had you know a privilege of working for guys there like Jimmy Tuffy and John Gibb, who I know you had on, one of the finest emergency managers in the country, barring none. And um, you know, uh, then I went with FEMA, and I spent uh, you know 14 years with FEMA, uh, doing some some very interesting things. Always in the IMAP program, uh, I spent all of that time either in Region Two, right, New York home, and then uh, uh, from there I went to DC for the last oh I don't know eight years or so, and uh, ran one of their national teams as. Uh, um, you know, as type one FCOSES. And I think the other part is uh, I've been privileged uh, to have been present at some of uh, uh, the worst times in this nation's history, at least since 2004. That's, a, that's an, interest, an interesting way to put it. Uh, so I recall us working together in both your capacities when you were with the state. And I was with city emergency management. And then later on, when I was with state emergency management, and you were with, uh, I think, the Region 2 team. For the listeners that may not know, Region 2 uh, is a very dynamic FEMA region in that it covers New York, New Jersey, and the Caribbean, which would be Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, I believe. So this uh, it's not the kind of place where you could just hop in a car and be your next disaster Uh by just by just driving over there is that is that accurate oh yeah no that, that that's very very accurate and you know uh oconus type of, of activity develops another whole side of emergency management because it teaches you something that we learned steve the way we came up you know through through traditional public safety when you're out there uh and you're you know either in a small team or by yourself anticipating events and, and preparing for events, even if it's within seconds of them happening, uh, is critical to, to success. And when you're working in the Caribbean and you've got uh, a five-day or seven-day or 10-day turnaround time for resources and, and support, and if you work in the Pacific, I've worked in the Pacific, where it's even longer, uh, you've got to have uh, the ability to understand what's on the ground, understand the risks, understand the needs, prioritize, anticipate and order resources with some confidence. It's interesting that you put uh, the term OCONUS into the conversation. I had not considered U.S. territories uh, and other uh, areas in the Caribbean to be OCONUS, but I guess from a from a logistics and command and control perspective, it would be outside the continental United States. I always think of OCONUS as being uh, uh, Europe, Asia, that kind of thing. And, and, and that's, again, I don't think either definition is wrong. One is more a political definition, uh, and then the other is, um, you know, a practical definition. But anytime you're off the, you know, primary land area of the United States, contiguous states, that's what we considered OCONUS. And, you know, FEMA has a lot of responsibilities, OCONUS, and, and it does, um, change how, how we operate uh, in in uh, as opposed to how we might operate in New York City, for example, right? Well, I can only imagine, uh, I don't, you said you were out in the Pacific, so I can only imagine how difficult a challenge it would be to be uh, leading a team, uh, let's say an IMAT or, or being FCO on the ground for a job in, uh, in Guam or with the Northern Marianas. I think there's uh, I, I think there's some significant challenges there just just by time zone distances. Yeah, exactly right. And of course, if you're out there, you you also are a different day than everybody that's providing you help too. So it's right. reconciling, you know, the uh, uh, the time warp there. But uh, again, it's it's just taking the, the skills that we learn now, and one one of the things I found. Uh, is we, we tend to, particularly younger people coming into this or, or newer people coming into this, they tend to look at, at you know, uh, major disasters or, you know, type ones, what I call type one plus disasters. And they, they want to do the same things they do 
just with more stuff, right? Because they've been very successful doing that. When if you're going to, to, to manage, you know, a World Trade Center type of disaster or an Oconus large disaster like Maria or, or Irma, if you, if you want to manage those, you've got to have a set of tools beyond uh, what we use every day. And, and that's a, a critical um, uh, understanding that you come to over time. Let's talk about that a minute, because I think that goes back to what we were talking about pre-show when we said we'd come back to it. So this sounds like a, a good time. If you could sort of weave in the 9-11 experience and the and you were starting to talk about um, the positives by way of lessons learned and programmatic changes we were all able to make from 9-11, the tragedy of 9-11. And and now you're talking about type one plus disasters. Love the term, by the way. What has the uh, the emergency management community learned from that? And how can can we as career professionals and the younger uh, professionals entering our profession use those lessons? Yeah, I think I think the things we took out of nine eleven were some practical things. Uh, we always talk about instant stabilization as one of our three main priorities, right? Um, but yet, very often we miss a, a part of that, which is securing the incident site. Uh, I'll make an analogy, almost like a crime scene, right? You want to secure that uh, once, once you've determined what it is. And it's very hard in many instances. One of the things that made Oklahoma City successful, New York City successful, is we are literally able to fence off those areas, secure them, limit access, get the right people in to do the right things at the right time, and then limit the, the, the potential or you know, injury, untoward events outside of, of uh, the people that needed to be there to do what they, they had to do. And we see that every day. I, as I was telling you before, I think of 9-11 always on the day. I mean, I think of it often, but always on the day. And then I think of it the day that I go to Mount Sinai for my yearly checkup, right? And I think of all the men and women who have died since beyond the, 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 Brit, the friends that we lost, the brothers and in, in, uh, and sisters that we lost doing the, the response to that, that were involved in that, we've probably had more people die as a result of that. So what did we take out of that with the RAND study that we did about command and control as it applies to, um, uh, you know, using the appropriate PPE, using it early, using it appropriately, being fit tested for it, all of those things that go with it. We have taken a very hard lesson out of uh, both Oklahoma City, particularly World Trade Center and the Pentagon, to, to say, okay, what is the better way to go about this? How do we set up? We looked at how we set up staging in an urban environment, something we had never faced before. And it, it paid huge dividends. Uh, the other One of the other big jobs we worked with was Sandy. Right? How do we stage? How do we work a, a disaster that is not only uh, above ground, but it's it's subterranean? Uh, we don't often do those things in emergency management, right? We don't do a lot of high rises. We don't do a lot of subterranean work. But all of those things are hard lessons that apply to how we're going to manage those big earthquakes, how we're going to manage those those uh, those jobs of that nature, right? The one plus jobs. So you're 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 um you're talking about incident stabilization. It's the second time in uh in a few hours I've heard about fencing off an incident operational area. So in the uh one of the uh, in the episode that uh, I dropped it here at five minutes to chaos for nine eleven, I have a New York City uh, FDNY lieutenant from the Urban Search and Rescue Team, medical specialist. Uh, and he talks about um, he didn't use the term incident stabilization, but he talked. He spoke about how the FDNY got control of the, the of Ground Zero, and that was by putting a fence up. So mm -hmm. your 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 stories there is is consistent, and I think it's important to highlight how the simplest things can have such far reaching and and dramatic effect. And also, he talks about um, a simple thing as having a boot wash and ensuring that none of the PPE went inside the medical tent and how none of the urban search and rescue uh, members of the FDNY the, on the medical side have, uh, they're, they're monitored, of course, but they haven't uh, 
become ill with the uh, with the nine one one cancer. You may not know this, but um, my brother in law passed from the nine one one cancer in twenty seventeen. He I was a uh, FDNY uh, rescue paramedic. He was down at Ground Zero the day of my sister's husband. Uh, it's come up in uh, in a couple different discussions, and uh, so anyway, the point they make is that um, it's 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 personal for me as well, and 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 the story you're telling really touches home. And to talk about it this this on this date, you know, just in advance of the anniversary, is is really is is really important. Yeah, I, I think, and you know, beyond that, beyond the simple things, uh, when I say simple, uh, impactful, but lessons that are easy to learn. We took out of 9-11 uh, systematic changes that are still ongoing today, right? A national approach to command and control in disasters. Hard fought to get uh, traditional folks to use what they, we all looked at as a wildfire model. But yet here we are, the, the, the um, evolution of MIMS beyond uh, you know, the fire scope model. How do we make it work, maintain the intent of the process, but make it work for other disciplines, make it work beyond that. Uh, the work you and I did um, when we were on the, the, the steering committee for the um, uh, introduction of ICS into city activities, uh, right during 9-11, we were working on that. And then uh, the SIMS that followed, right? How do we change NIMS to work in this in in the city environment. It's so actually I true. All... I I think I think I, let me just jump in for a minute because what you just said is very poignant. We were developing, I mean some agencies had had used the incident command system in New York, but it it's never been used in the purest form. It's used now in an effective way. Mm -hmm. Uh you know, you take the best of of a of a system that's malleable and and adaptable and you make it work but you know we were building some of the ICS airplane to to use that uh to use that analogy as we were flying it and i the meetings you're talking about down at the pier where we were uh, yep. developing that ICS structure for the for the recovery was um late in the game because you you drop you drop the fire scope model and for the younger folks that don't know what fire scope is i would encourage you to look that up fire scope was the program in california where um uh, the incident command system was was designed and it was 1970 so we're 53 years into it and uh i'm going to say this tom and it's going to be raw and i, I can't imagine you you're going to you're going to disagree with it 53 years after 9 11 uh, I'm sorry, 53 years after the formation of the fire scope program and the incident command system in the United States, and 23 years after the 9-11 commission report, we still have, as good as we are, as good as we are, we still have incident management, command and control, and especially communications problems in managing major emergencies, especially those of an interag of an interagency nature or that which in uh, involves multiple levels of government. You're absolutely right. And one of the things that there's a couple of things that lead to that is A, uh, we don't often practice what we preach. Um, and, and that's a universal problem, whether it was us in FEMA or the, the smallest local government that's got a one man emergency manager, fire coordinator, and EMS coordinator shop, right? Um, the other thing is, I, I mentioned before, I was privileged to be part of you know, most or at least many of, of the, 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 the large disasters of our time. Most people don't get that opportunity to practice their craft, to hone it, to, to develop it. So they try to do it through exercise. They try to do it through other things. Johnny Gibb used to say, you got to be lucky to, get, to, to have disasters happen. I mean, yeah, you know, and in the context of what he was saying is to, to in to be able to employ these, these, these tools, these skills in the field, be able to work through those communications issues, you know, um, uh, real time in, in, in the act, be able to define not only C2, but how you're going to, you know, uh, communicate up and communicate down under the pressure of the actual situation, the political pressure, 
the, the, the requirements of, of the folks on the ground, the most important peoples, is how are we, you know, what are we doing to quickly reduce the, the suffering of the survivors? All of those things are hard to duplicate, particularly in uh, an environment where many folks don't have the budget, they don't have the skills, they don't have the equipment, and they don't have the expertise to, to do that for a host of reasons, most of them not their own fault. You talk about um, you talk about budget essentially, and uh, you know you hear the term often. All disasters are local, and I don't necessarily agree with that. Of course, disasters occur in a local jurisdiction, but unless you're in a big city like New York or LA, perhaps some other mid-sized cities, you're going to need. I'm talking about a, a true disaster, not not a major emergency that should be handled by local public safety resources. You're going to need the the emergency management infrastructure to be activated pretty quickly, mm -hmm. uh, from a financial perspective, and that's why it's critical that processes be in place for the mayor to declare request of the governor for the governor to declare and make a request to FEMA. So you can get at least in the early stages of a major event an emergency declaration. So you can get like A and B category A and B going for emergency protective measures and debris removal and stuff like that. But the point I'm I'm going to is that, and I'm I'm capitalizing on, on what you said is that cities, uh, municipalities, uh, uh, probably tribes, uh, communities, states don't really have the. Well, you said this already, the 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 wherewithal from a financial perspective. And I guess the, the question will come at some point as FEMA, which is starting to talk now about running out of uh, funds, uh, the, the running low on the disaster response fund, and it's only September. When will the onus be placed? Should the onus be placed on on cities and states to have the ability to uh, produce financial support for disasters beyond the 25 percent cost share? Look, I think that when when I say all disasters are local, really what I'm doing and trying to do, what FEMA was trying to do when they say that, is recognize the inherent autonomy of those local governments, state government, local government, that we, are not, we are not there to in any way infringe or impinge on that. We're there as a supportive element. Now, many times, depending upon where it is, the job morphs into more than that because we have the experience, we have the equipment, we have the network to bring together a whole of government response in coordination with the state in support of whatever local government has it. As to uh, what local governments need to do, um, I'm often struck by what would we do if there wasn't a state disaster fund or if there wasn't a federal fund, right? We still have to resolve these situations. But I think that we also have to understand that the way that the world has progressed over, over these last 50 years that you and I have been doing this, uh, the cost of living, the, the requirement for people to work two and three jobs, mom and dad and everyone, and the taxation structure um, makes it difficult for states to afford to have a significant um, uh, disaster relief fund. And many states even have a hard time, and I've worked in them at different periods of time, when simply bonding was beyond their ability because their ratings would not support that type of requirement. EMAC is, is another great tool, a wonderful tool to support state to state. But even that is, is at some point, requires the uh, state that's asking for the assistance to pay back. And that is not a uh, FEMA reimbursable in terms of an EMAC request. It may be reimbursable because it's uh, an eligible uh, expenditure. Uh, and most often it is. But the point being, uh, when they built the EMAC compact, as you know, they specifically left FEMA out of the equation. So it was pure state to state. So again, I think that um, FEMA is going in the right direction. Uh, I think that, um, you know, they're, they're really, they have become over the last few, uh, you know, administrations from Craig onward, uh, the presidents have looked to us to be the uh, 911 uh, governmental response. 
Uh, and you know, we're we're I think over time you'll see them gear up to meet that that requirement better and better. I mean, federal government response, not local or state governments. No, I got that, and that was all really well said. I had uh, not considered uh, the fact that EMAC was not reimbursable. But the action taken would have, would be there, and and that kind of makes sense when you think about it. That uh, you know the EMAC request itself, um, you know, the, just rolling resources, but you could apply recovery funds based on the work that was done uh, to the to to the support there. Wow, so much to uncover and so much to uh, so much to unpack rather, and so much to discuss. Um, let's talk about command, control, communication, coordination, and today the looping in of in intelligence into crisis management, because um, that's, I don't think that's new to folks like you and I, but the, and intelligence doesn't necessarily mean, you know, guys in sunglasses and trench coats, you know, that kind of intelligence. Incident intelligence could come from the National Weather Service. I say that all the time. Well, our closest federal partner that we interact with daily. I'm I can go for weeks as an emergency manager without interacting with FEMA, but I will never go a, a day without re- reading a National Weather Service product. So, so, so that's an example. So, recommendations, thoughts for for the listeners on how how we can all do better capitalize on the strengths we have now how we are doing what we're doing right and to to continue that because at some point you know i keep saying at some point we're going to have a major incident where you know we're going to need all of this to, to you know to really bear out and then we have things like sonoma county and uh and and maui and and it's sort of like uh you know a never-ending series of these major incidents yeah, I think I think the big thing uh, it, we we have worked through in many places, uh, and and it really comes down to when we talk about C two beyond the forces that that we uh, control, uh, it's really about uh, relationships, right? It's about trust built up over time, and uh, it's about having a structure in which you can import other folks that have. Uh, statute authority, or by precedent, design, plan, delegated authority, whatever the case may be, have a leadership role in a, in a disaster, still come together while at the same time recognizing each of their own autonomous authorities. And, and that's the trick, right? But what I find the trick in C2, Steve, is quite frankly, it's not the people with formal authority and formal responsibility that I think are often the key to so much of this, it's the informal leaders out there, right? So if I go into, I use New York City because it's the best example of this. When I go into a job in New York City, I'm not in there very long when I was the ops chief or as an FCO, I, I will go out and I will arrange through the appropriate folks, a meeting with community leaders, with religious leaders, with, with folks who lead ethnic enclaves, because, you know, uh, at least as well, probably much better than me, New York isn't a city of political boundaries. It's a city of, of neighborhoods. And, and to get uh, real uh, on the ground action, I've got to find a way to, to bring those folks into the fold, to encourage them, to have them part of the solution. And, and I think that that outreach, you know, we do try to do as much of it as you can beforehand. But if you can get to the folks who are the informal leaders, they're the ones who will get the public to do those things that we need to have them do far better than maybe a mayor or a president or a governor, particularly as the country becomes more and more polarized politically. Um, so I think it's important as a leader that if you're going to be successful, you've got to do a couple of things. You've got to decentralize to the point of pain. You've got to spread your resources, support them, and have an interconnected organizational structure, be it an area command, be it theater-level management, be it you know an incident complex, any of those types of things. So you have this interconnected tissue that supports that but allows 
the downstream folks to manage the, the part of the disaster assigned to them, support them with resources, but then um, you know have that local support. The other thing that I have found that people don't spend enough time paying attention to is social media, right? There is a lot of good information in social media because not only you pick up trends through social media, you also pick up emotion through social media. And we have the folks now that have the science to do that, to pull that out. So FEMA has a large investment in social media monitoring, not just for what's going on, but what does it need? So what I'm on is on a disaster, Steve, I check two things every day. First thing in the morning, I check trends that had to do with what I'm hearing in social media, right? What, what the community is telling us in, in conversations among themselves. And then at the end of the day, I will go and I will, I will grab the folks in ADR and EEO and, and uh, all of those areas internally to make sure that the same conversations are being had within my organization, right? Is my organization in a good place? So I, there are the two things that I tend to do every day because if my organization's in a good place, I can't respond, is, is in a bad place. It's not in a good place. I can't well respond to the needs of the community, which is my first and foremost responsibility. Um, and if I don't know what's really going on in the community, uh, I will respond uh, uh, not as effectively as I might like. I'll give you an example. I was doing a job in Colorado, oh, a number of years ago now. And, you know, many states have people that for whatever reason live a different lifestyle. They're off the grid is a, is a very loose term, but they live in small enclaves. They live by themselves. They don't care to be bothered by a lot of outside influences, particularly the federal government. And um, But through social media monitoring, we have found these isolated communities and we're able to get them the support they needed quickly. And, and so I think that, that, you know, those are a couple of things that I don't know that we pay enough attention to. I don't know that we certainly train well to. Um, and then having a good communication scheme so that you can reach people uh, in, in the ways that they communicate is also important because everybody doesn't do what we do, Steve. Listen to this, read this do those things that we do every part of our day. They don't have the time, they don't have the inclination, they don't have the education, they don't have the equipment, whatever the case may be. So we've got to find ways of getting to those folks um, who need the information maybe more than most. You know, we talk about um, today in emergency management, uh, disaster, equity, and inclusion. And, and here you are with the better mousetrap talking about how you have uh, made those inroads with uh, underserved communities, uh, both in urban settings and, oh, by the way, in rural settings as well, because an underserved community could be, I could think of one of the Catskills right now. It was the Hurricane Irene Tropical uh, Storm Lee Complex. I think it was in Greene County. The name of the town escapes me, but... This was this would be the epitome of a rural underserved community by just its distance from civilization, if if you will. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't mean to make it sound like Mayberry, but it had it had electricity, it had you know public safety and all that, but it was remote. It was as remote as it gets. And I experienced that in Colorado as well. We had mountaintop towns where we had dam infrastructure, uh, and we had an obligation to issue uh, you know emergency warnings if they were going to be in the way of a potential dam breach or, or, or flood scenario but i want to come back to the urban setting because i recall being in some of those situations with you where we were taking um the the show on the road and going into those uh into those communities i could think of a flood disaster in queens where we were doing that we're going uh, into those communities and and just the way you put it uh religious uh centers religious enclaves when you say religious enclaves i i i have a a specific vision of what uh, of what that means in places like uh like brooklyn which might be the hasidic jewish community in crown heights or williamsburg brooklyn or west indian community in brooklyn or a um 
perhaps a, a Haitian community. Hey, we had a declared flood disaster that you're pretty sure you you and I worked together in Queens from a nor'easter in 1996. We had disaster assistance centers set up, uh, two or three of them, and we were dealing with uh, something to the tune of 10 or 12 languages, seven of which were Asian languages. And then added on top of that, we had Italian, German, uh, some other languages. And it was it was imperative on us to give out the literature that we did in all those languages. And we made that work. Of course, New York City had that capability, the mayor's office of international affairs or something to that effect. But uh, we talk about these things today as almost in a way of like pushing it into the business. And here you are just doing it. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's really important. I, COVID was another great example. You know, we, we wanted to encourage people uh, to be vaccinated. Uh, we ran the vaccination centers. And, um, you know, they, you try to develop a one-size-fits-all, but it doesn't because uh, people have a different approach in rural communities where there are no resources. And in, in take Queens, right? Uh you know, uh, people look at the Asian community in New York that are unsure, and they think it's all Chinatown. They have no idea that Queens is the most um, diverse county in the country. Right? Is, I was thinking and, of Queens and, when when we were talking about that, and and the 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 um, the Asian communities in Queens, and that is that's diverse not only from. A country perspective, you know, we have Chinese immigrants, Korean immigrants from, uh, you know, Japanese uh, China itself. There were four or five dish- different uh, cultures, uh, Cantonese, et cetera. Well, and then, of course, some of the folks, uh, you know, Indians, uh, you know, people from India are considered to be Asian. And right. that's another whole block. So, um it's it's understanding those differences and working with them and trying to reach out to them. You know, it's not hard, right? Uh, you and I grew up in neighborhoods like that where, you know, you learn to, uh, to, to, to you know, you, you knew that the, the Jewish kids weren't going to be around on Saturday and the Italian kids weren't going to be around on Wednesday night or Sunday. You know, you, you understood uh, the, the, the family requirements and you understood uh, the type of... Um, uh, things that made that community work together. Uh, and you also understood the things that wouldn't work within those groups for the same reasons. And, and I think that understanding those things goes a long way towards um, doing inclusion as it was meant to be, but not making it a suicide pact. You know what I mean? Being able to uh, put it within the context of the science of emergency management. That's so beautifully said. So we talk about crisis events uh, on this show, and you and I agreed in advance that we weren't going to get into any particular one because uh, of the philosophical nature of what um, I had anticipated you presenting. And boy, you really hit the ball out of the park. Um, you, you know, it it was always, always a pleasure to work with you. You know, I, I could recall scenarios where when we would activate the EOC and uh, when I activated the EOC in New York, I always asked for FEMA to be president, whether I was with the state or the, or the city, because everybody has a seat at the table. You know, it's it's everybody into the pool, right? And I got to tell you, you and Sam Benson were always the first in the door. And I don't know how Sam did it because he was coming from Manhattan, but you were right there in Albany. Uh, but but even when I was in New York City, you, you were first in the door, man. I mean, there were many others, but um, you... you um, Please see yourself as a teacher and uh, and continue to share the gospel because you're talking about, Tom, doing what uh, we can only think about from a philosophical perspective in educational settings. Do you have an incident or, or incidents, maybe COVID, maybe 9-11, where you could sort of package and talk about a number of these different things that led to successful outcomes? Yeah, let me give you an example of what we talked about, and we'll we'll build into this um, uh, the the inclusion uh, issue and the equity issue as well, right? So as I said, you know, there's times you have to reach out, and I had two situations where I had um, a, a 
mass fatality situation and um, an another large uh, disaster setting uh, from a natural disaster. And in both cases, we were going to need to, to, to get some, um, uh, try to work with, with uh, the local um, communities that, that would have been impacted in this, right? Um, Muslim communities, Jewish communities, and others that have very strict requirements about what they eat, how they handle the dead, all of those types of things. So one of the things that you know you find out and you learn and you study and you talk to people is that since the, the history is not all that far apart beyond religion, uh, you know, kosher and halal are only a matter of degree. And, and I'm simplifying this, but they're only a matter of degree. Right. No, so but you're, you're correct. Yeah. Right. So I can remember sitting with 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 uh, God rest his soul with Jerry. And, you know, we were saying, how do we meet the requirements for halal uh, uh, meals and for kosher meals? So we, I, I had a meeting and I brought in imams and I brought in uh, the rabbis and the rebbies and we sat down and I got the, the imams to agree that we would order one type of food. We would order kosher because it was a stricter standard. So as an emergency manager, I didn't have to deal with two sets of uh, individual requirements. I was able to roll them into one, right? So we were able to do that, but bringing them together, engaged in a conversation about how we would move forward relative to a number of other things. And we would meet on a semi-regular basis, and we were able to cut through a lot of things before they became issues. So I think that that's just one example that had a pragmatic outcome, as well as an ongoing incident outcome to ease uh, our way forward. And then another one I had, in fact, I had this on two occasions, was, was handling human remains in a way that was respectful of religious law and respectful of civilian law. And working with uh, the, the individuals on both sides of that to come to an agreement on how we would do what we needed to do, the timing of what we would need to do, what we would call what we needed to do. And, and I thought that it just um, was able to, again, take something that could have been uh, a, a um, headbutting and turn it into a handshake, right? People that had each had a, a requirement, each had a dog in the fight, and there were parts of that that they were at, you know, opposite ends of, of the spectrum. But we were able to bring them together and work that out. But these are just small examples uh, of what we were able to do. And then I think when it turns into communication, I had a disaster one time where, um, you know, it looked like we were going to lose an area uh, that, uh, quite frankly, could not evacuate. And the original um, flood map suggested that um, uh, it wouldn't be a problem. But as the storm shifted after, you know, it became, uh, uh, you know, they called off all, all activities, uh, you know, um, and we just everybody hunkered down. It's a hurricane? It looked like it looked, well, it was a hurricane. It looked like we might lose some of these folks. So the importance of trust we met with the state folks we met and we, we worked out operational plans where we were able to really go out on a limb and save as many people as we can. But we also worked out with their public affairs folks. We spent the night working out how the governor would approach this in the morning so that you can either own that story or you can wind up being defensive about that story, right? So we looked at it, we took it on. It was a hard discussion. It was hard to do. In the end, we were able to get people in, make the rescues. We didn't need it. But the governor's team was prepared to have him, you know, brief at Olight 100 what happened, how it happened, to be proactive and to, in fact, set the scene as it actually was, as opposed to someone else reporting it through a different prison. You know, they don't teach... Um politics in emergency management uh undergrad or uh probably not even at the master's level and that's something one that should be taught and, and you know the nuances of 
politics and emergency management has to be learned. Those are stripes that you earn by having mud on your boots and being in the EOC. I like to use the 30-hour example. When you're standing in the EOC at your 30th hour and an elected official or an emergency management director that's over-caffeinated and uh, is getting a lot of incoming from the media and is getting uh, a lot of incoming from uh, you know other a- areas of of the of, of the political community is unloading on you the twenty five year old, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The 20, I do. <laughs> the twenty five year old, you know, poor guy that's been standing watch, doing it, writing sit reps, you know, drinking stale coffee, and of course it's not personal, but it's 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 disaster management and, and, and you, you know, you have to, you have to learn those things and you have to experience those things. Cause that's, that's just how it works. I'm not I, proud I think, of not sleeping for 30 hours, but that's just how it went. Well, it does. I think there's, there's a couple of things that, you know, we need to think here. You, you asked before, what are some of the areas we can improve in and, and being proactive in how we tell our story at every level of emergency management, we typically wait and are defensive. We wind up explaining or defending, whereas I think we could get far more bang for the buck if we went out and were able to tell the story um, from our perspective in the first instance. That's number one. The other thing that a lot of emergency managers don't realize, Steve, again, I, I know folks with your experience do, but every disaster has five echelons that you have to address. Every one of them. You have the political echelon, you have the policy echelon, you have the strategic echelon, you have the tactical echelon, and then you have the work assignment echelon, the boots on the ground, guys doing the job. And if you don't build each of those echelons into everything you do, you're gonna forget somebody or something important and get out ahead of or be behind. And neither one of those is an enviable position to be in. And it goes back to then, as you said, somebody standing there screaming at a 25-year-old kid. You know, you know, I have learned so much here from you, Tom, even though we've worked side by side. I understand all that stuff that you just said, and you just you just gave me 40 years of experience in politics, policy, strategic, tactical, and work assignment. I'd never thought of it from an echelon perspective. I, you know, we don't need lifelines and ICS and all that stuff. And we got Tom and his, and his, and his echelons. Cause this <laughs> is, cause, but you, but you're right. You're right. This is, this is, um, this is how you get it done. And this is how you, how you look at things. And, you know, the way you um, approach emergency management is, is, is unique because, as much as I know you to be an ICS guy and you know, ICS better than, and I've worked, I worked in Colorado for eight years. These guys sleep ICS pure core, you know, uh, wildfire ICS NIMS. And then, you know, the stuff out of Boise, Idaho, these guys are, these guys are solid, uh, when it comes to ICS, but you speak it just as well. And yet you're nimble and you're adaptable and you're talking about applying emergency management practices and principles in a way that is not restrictive because ICS can be restrictive as much as it can be a help. And 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 that's just impressive stuff. Thank you, sir. That's great stuff. Um, So let me start looking at some notes here because we have, oh my God, so much that we've covered. And I had a feeling this was going to be great. And uh, I'm glad for us to still you know, remain professional colleagues and, and, and personal friends. And uh, I look forward to connecting with you next time I'm up in New York. If you find your way down to, uh, uh, down to Florida, you give me a ring. I'm going to go through some, some lessons learned, uh, situational awareness, uh, especially for locations that might be distant. So in your regard, distant was being a, uh, an emergency manager in in a region that had Oconus activities. But let me put this in a corporate perspective because the podcast talks to corporate emergency managers as well. And 
your philosophy of distance applies to some of the organizations that I've had on. In fact, a gentleman was on before his emergency manager. I spoke of him earlier for M&T Bank. He has a global footprint. And uh, uh, another colleague who I've been on her podcast and she'll be appearing on mine. She's a global emergency manager for an insurance company and she has a global footprint. Same thing. Understand the situation. While it's decentralized and you spoke about that as well, there's a sense of uh, decentralization where the responsibility is placed at the local level, but there has to be some, you know, just knowledge of the situation or getting the intelligence. So if things go south, you're able to at least stand up a response and support the local, uh, the, the locals. Um, I got to read my chicken scratch because I was feverishly writing stuff down. Uh, no, it's, it's all good. You know, a, a reminder that, um, EMAC is not uh, funded unless, uh, you know, you can receive funding for the actual activity if it meets uh, one of the, the FEMA requirements. Um, relationship management, man, I call it Rolodex management. You know, old guys like us still probably have Rolodex, yeah. uh, you know, or I call it cell phone management today. But uh, again, I said this before, as uh, as structured as you could be as an ICS-based emergency manager, I know you know how to pick up the phone. Because I used to do that. As I said earlier, I'd pick up the phone and say, uh, hey, you know, hey, Farge, I'm activating. You know, could you get a team over here? And I recall situations where, you know, there was no declaration. There was no uh, – we weren't there yet. We were still setting it up, but we had the levels of government in, in the EOC mm-hmm. making decisions. I, I, have, I have a particular memory of a story where – I was activated. New York City EOC was activated. We were activated. FEMA was there. I think you were there in your state capacity. And I got a request for sandbags from from rail agency. And we were out. And uh, I think it was you and somebody from FEMA. We went to the room and we literally made the trilateral request right there. City to state, state to federal. And FEMA activated the national, the rather the uh, uh, Army Corps of Engineers and deployed yep. sandbags. It was right. It was a railroad yard along the uh, major deegan along yeah, no, that's the, exactly right uh, along the harlem river yeah I, I i thought that was you and that's how you just do it you, you know you just get that you know you backfill the paperwork later i mean this was a formal eoc setting but well that uh, that's really great i like what you said about um decentralized command placing responsibility at the lower levels of the i'll use the term echelon again area command uh, decentralized incident management and then building up, uh, 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 if I can call it this, a centralized command and control infrastructure to support the local uh, operation, the decentralized elements. This has come up a few times in the podcast, the decentralized, centralized structure. And it's it may be hard to visualize, but it's it certainly works in public sector and it certainly works in the private sector. You know, I'm glad we got into DEI. I think it was important because, you know, the, the what you said about going into cultural areas, culturally sensitive areas and dealing with religious organizations. And, and then you said the word religious enclaves, man, and that just absolutely drove it home for me. You know, reminded me that um, emergency management does this. Maybe we as an industry uh, globally or throughout the years, maybe we could do do better but we were compelled to do it because of the neighborhoods and the communities that we were supporting. I seem to recall a flood event in, in Orange County, New York, and we were talking about the kosher food requirements for the potentially displaced population. Now, I don't, rem- I don't remember if we actually depo- deployed the foods, but we had, we had assembled the foods for deployment and uh, we were ready to launch. I think we probably did. Because, uh, you know, Monroe County, uh, Orange, you know, Orange County, Monroe, uh, well, not that far, you know, pretty, pretty urbanized area. Um, wow. And and all the things you spoke about, you know, the positive lessons learned from 9-11. I don't think anybody thinks of it that way. And and I appreciate that you had the wherewithal to, to couch it in, in those terms, because there were. There were lessons on every disaster has positives. And on September 8th, 2023, it's important to uh, to remember 9-11 and some of the lessons that came out of that. Well, you know, Steve, the way I look at this all these years later, if we can't look to important things and sensitive uh, are, are things that have moved 
what we do forward, move this discipline of emergency management, move first response forward, then, then that's just another sign that, that those folks outside, you know, they, 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 they didn't die for a bigger thing. Here, some good came out of the, the civilians and, and the responders that we lost. And, and um, that's the best you can hope for in a situation like that, right? We can't change it. All we can do is hope that enough good comes out of it that we, we can move forward in respect to those people we lost, if incident, no other reason. Incident stabilization and PPE came up a few times. I mentioned this earlier, and you brought those up as two major lessons learned from, from 9-11. And then we go into the pandemic, which is a major PPE event. And uh, it, it just it just shows how the how the the dotted line goes from one disaster to the next. Hey, you were in the meetings, right, when we were talking about uh, um, uh, vaccine clinics and and pods, right? Yeah. And we were talking yes, about right points of distribution. And now you know we write these plans for bioterrorism in the late nineties. CDC accepts them. They the the model gets distributed around the country, and then is a pandemic and i'm seeing our plan work around the country and i i'm I, I i'm not being aloof when i say that but we had a whole team of people right sam benson mike berkowitz rebecca rabin uh the health department marcy layden annie fine ben mohica the simo folks kevin neary yourself and others helping build this program and guess what 20 years later it worked Problems, challenges, there's always problems, there's always challenges, but the concept worked, the, the philosophy was there, and I'm, I'm, I'm just proud that, that I had an opportunity to be in par a part of that element of our history. No, I agree with you. You know what other plan, thank God, thank God, we never got to it to, to any degree, but the work that we did with Frankie DiPaolo and some of your staff and my guys and everything, when we built out those mass casualty plans, or I'm, I'm sorry, mass fatality plans. Yes. Right? And, and as that rolled out, and as we were working out, and I, of course, with FEMA, as we're going through the COVID, and as we're going through that, I'm actually, you know, going through my old stuff, pulling that stuff out, saying, okay, if this, you know, uh, were to, to get to the point where we have to start employing this, and, and, you know, is FEMA ready to support it? So I'm pulling out that stuff. So, I mean, the work that we did, while not perfect, certainly, certainly set a platform from which we were able to be relatively successful in terms of how we managed it. Yeah. Yeah, I remember those discussions, too. We were planning uh, for mass fatalities associated with terrorist attacks. And if you plan for... Evac uh, let's say evacuation or sheltering human mass care or mass fatalities doesn't matter what you're planning for it has application to other other things so we didn't have well, of course we had our all hazard SAMP you know or EOP as it's called today we had that but we also had very specific plans for things like like uh like mass casualties wow we can go on forever we may have to do another episode because I'm gonna I'm looking at the clock and I just want to say it is so absolutely incredible to walk through this element of history, but, you know, I've done, I've done this before and I did it with John Gibb, you know, again, one of the most important emergency managers of our time, especially yes. in our realm and in, uh, in, in, uh, in our sphere as, as New Yorkers, but you and I just walked through uh, a sort of a practical application of what, what we did, what you did, what the community has done, the EM community, and what's still applicable. And I'm grateful for that. And I appreciate that. And I think the listeners are going to really enjoy this episode. I hope so. And, and again, my friend, thank you very much. It's an honor to spend this hour plus with you. And uh, um, anything I can ever do to help you in the future, just let me know. My friend. Thank you. And we will stay in touch. I want to thank Tom Fargione, emergency management uh, leader, and mentor joining five minutes to chaos for sharing his experience and crisis management story five minutes to chaos drops weekly on thursdays please follow us or like us on your favorite platform or set it to alert when an episode drops i welcome your comments or questions which can be submitted in the comments area of the show or directed to me on linkedin until next time embrace the chaos
that brings us to the end of this episode of Five Minutes to Chaos. We hope you enjoyed exploring the many facets of the incident we discussed today and gained some new insights and perspectives along the way. Remember, confronting chaos is not something to be feared or avoided. It is a central crisis management role that we can learn to embrace and navigate with robust leadership and personal resilience. By embracing chaos, we can tap into our creative potential, adapt to situations more easily, and find a way to overcome the challenges of complex emergencies. I'd like to thank our guests and experts who shared their insights with us today, and to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you found value in today's episode and invite you to continue exploring the many aspects of complex crisis management. Don't forget to subscribe to 5 Minutes to Chaos for more thought-provoking conversations and insights. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review or sharing it with a friend and colleague. Until next time, embrace the chaos. Thank you.